Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Saturday the 25th of November, day later than usual, sorry about that. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be listening to Sonia Poulton, and I'll tell you who she is, a former mainstream media journalist, or dipped in and out of that. She's now doing her own research for independent journalism. She's going to be giving her thoughts on Tony Blair, and of course that mingles into a great degree of areas, and she gives her opinions on those areas. And uh, I think it even dips into the Madeleine McGann mystery at some point. I know she's made some films about that. Uh, that which is nothing... Uh, I, I haven't studied those documentaries, the whole the whole uh, missing kids, dead kids. I don't study that sort of stuff. It's not the sort of thing I enjoy looking at. So, uh, But I think she makes reference to uh, the films on there. Also going to be listening to Russell Brand and so I thought that was the theme of the show today innocent till proven guilty so the same reason I'll play Russell Brand is the same reason that when anyone calls Tony Blair a war criminal I would have to say no he's not because he's not been found guilty of such so um, now we can argue all day about what evidence uh, for both men can be put forward before a jury of their peers but at the end of the day it hasn't happened for either so I'm going to play clips of both and uh, apologies to to Russell for comparing him to Tony Blair, even if he did do all the terrible things he's accused of. Uh, it's uh, still not used depleted uranium on children in Iraq to cause birth defects. And of course, Sonia will make references, J.P. Morgan Fee, which I believe they inherited the central bank for Iraq as well. That's worth bearing in mind. So, um, innocent till proven guilty and until then it's all just allegations and we're going to be listening to a lot of Tony Bear's ties and according to Sonia and her research and Russell Brand gives a com- real good lay down of like a wide view of everything you just like really got this 20 minute video and hit it out of the park on all of those things from my point so uh, I'm not getting involved in the allegations uh, against him uh, has he been uh, found guilty no right has he done a video which makes some really good points yes okay well we'll play the video then so that's about it and uh, if we've got time we'll get to the covid inquiry and listen to the remainder of the chat i had with craig as well so that's what's coming up on today's show but to begin with i'm going to read from i always keep read from mainstream media from across the globe and across the political spectrum and occasionally I do like to throw in an odd one which isn't mainstream media but as far as I can tell is a legitimate organisation and when I say as far as I can tell I did a quick duck duck go search on it let's not give my journalistic or investigative journalistic skills any delusions of grandeur shall we So this is from, I'm pretty certain I've never read from this before, the International Association of Fire and Rescue Services. (laughs) And I'll read what it says to you here. This is uh, the 7th of February 2023. So um, it's something that I was unaware of. The Norwegian shipping company Havila Krystruten will no longer allow electric cars on board its ships, according to Norwegian television NRK. The consequences of an electric car fire are considered too severe, states the company. The scenic Hurtigruten coastal route between Bergen and Kirkenes runs along the coast of Norway. From 2021, the two shipping companies, Hurtigruten and Havila, share a mutual agreement on the traffic between the two 
destinations. Toxic gases are released. After just over a year in scheduled traffic, the shipping company Havilu is now making changes to its regulations. Going forward, electric cars, hybrid cars and also hydrogen cars will not be allowed on board. Risk analysis found lithium batteries too risky on board. The decision was made after an external risk analysis was made on behalf of the company. What the risk analysis found was that fires in electric cars are considered more difficult to extinguish than fires in cars powered by petrol and diesel. An electric car fire gets very hot and there may be a risk of explosion where toxic gases will be released. This can, be, this can mean that you have to evacuate the ship immediately and in the worst case you have to have a total breakdown of the ship, says Lasse Anne Vangerstein, who is in charge of communications of Havila Christen to NRK. Competing ferry companies continues to allow all types of cars. The competitor had to agree to make a different assessment and will continue to allow all types of cars. We have transported cars between all ports for 40 years and we have no plans to stop it, says press spokesman Martin Henriksen. The issue of electric car fires on board ships is becoming more controversial in Scandinavia as more and more car owners switch to electric cars. When Finnish television company YLE reported on the matter recently, the shipping company's Viking line and Aland Strathlachlan stated that all types of cars are permitted on board their ships as long as there is no reason to believe the battery has been damaged. So there we go. That's um, that's an organisation I've never read from before. And here is an independent journalist that I haven't played before, but I've been familiar with her work. I'm going to be trying to show you more different people that you can continue your journey with. Um, that would take you down I've always said this show is to show you the evidence that there is a rabbit hole and then you can decide which one to go down and what right rabbit to chase and see what you come up with here is Sonia Poulton uh, and again the video can be found in the comments you can go and find her channel for yourself and then go and uh, subscribe and such should you wish to do so so Here's Sonia Poulton talking about um, an eclectic mix of issues, all that have something to do, in her opinion, with Tony Blair. In globalist world order, there's one person who hangs around like a particularly toxic bad smell, and that is the ever-present Sir Tony Blair. He was ennobled at Christmas 2022, a huge uproar about it, a petition about how he shouldn't have been given a sir, but hey, people like him get ennobled and get awards because of their service to upholding the status quo in the establishment. So I want to talk about how Tony Blair, despite him being as unpopular as ever, has never ever gone away from the world stage because he's always been key to the digital ID plan. Some people may think that his digital ID dream that he promotes these days is a new thing, but far from it. Some history for you. You may remember this. Anybody remember those sort of halcyon days of 1997 when Tony Blair was made prime minister? I was about five months pregnant with my daughter and I voted for him. We heard things can only get better repeated on cycle and some of us believed it could. Oh, what a joke. The point that I knew there was a real problem with Tony Blair was when one home secretary after another was pushing for an ID card scheme. All of his successive home secretaries 
pushed for an ID card scheme. Some of them in a slightly different form. David Blunkett talked about um, biometrics as where you become recognisable by a particular feature of you and that will be used for a number of things. And one has to wonder, how is Tony Blair, a man who is so, so seriously despised in this world, um, managed to remain at the centre of the political world as someone who is still shaping our society? Who does he know? Well, for starters, he's a Rothschild boy. Let us not forget that. He has been around the Rothschilds and working together with them for a digital dream. So, but the point is, is that Tony Blair's digital dream or our nightmare has been a long time coming. So almost as soon as he was in office in 1997, he began talking about identity identity cards. And once 9-11 happened, they ramped it up and they said, we need it to protect us from illegal immigrants coming into our country, which if anybody knows anything, Labour did no such thing. So that was a lie. But what they did was that they appealed to what they felt was the concern of the nation in order to be able to force through their identification card scheme. And as I say, one successive Home Secretary after another did this. But it was in 2006 when Tony Blair visited the forensic science services, which was attached to the home office. The forensic science services held DNA profiles on a database, many of which had been included since new laws allowed the expansion um, in 2003. The Criminal Justice Act allowed police to take and keep DNA samples from anyone, arrest, uh, from anyone arrested for an imprisonable offence, regardless of whether they were found guilty or not. And more than 5% at that time, more than 5% of the UK population was on that database compared to an EU average of 1.13%. So it was already showing you that the Big Brother Society was had taken root in the UK, but that wasn't enough for Tony Blair. In fact, let me read you a quote he said about this. So he visited the Forensic Science Services and praised Operation Advance, which used DNA testing to reanalyze samples in cold cases. And Tony Blair said, I think the politicians are more resistant than the public. I think the public think if this is helping us track down murderers, rapists, then go for it. So you see, Tony Blair and his type were prepared to use any public fear they could, even in even at the beginning of, of the 2000s, to push through um, an identity card scheme. When he was asked um, whether there should be any restrictions on this database, he responded, the number on the database should be the maximum number you can get. And so when he left the FSS, he told reporters that it was his ambition to have as many people as humanly possible, whether they were arrested for a crime or not, on that database. And he, so he, what he used was political means to say, he said, he, he was talking about, um, the Conservatives who were opposing this idea, he said their opposition to these DNA advances is a prime example of this. Thanks to legislation introduced by the Labour government, 21 dangerous criminals are now behind bars. The question for the Tories is whether they now support these measures, he said. So again, 
he wanted to appeal to the public about that this was about crime and punishment and protecting innocent people from murderers and rapists, etc. And but what he did, it was very clear to me that the, the statements that he made at the FSS, that this was an authoritarian prime minister. And I think in some respects, that was really when I was starting to properly wake up to what was really going on. I mean, I'd, I already understood what was going on in like other areas like the music industry, because I've been a music journalist, but I hadn't that long been working um, in reporting on politics. So it was quite a wake up call to me to realize that there were these politicians who wanted to introduce measures into our society which were draconian. And even more shocking that it was, you know, the good guy, Tony Blair, because believe me, unless you were there in 1997, it is hard to imagine the goodwill towards this man in the country, right? People loved him, absolutely loved him, which is why when when Princess Diana was killed and he came out and he did this whole speech about her being the people's princess, why do you think he was selected to be the one, right? Not just because he was prime minister, there were other people who could have given the, um, the speech on behalf of Princess Diana, but Tony Blair was as integral then as he is now. So let's continue with this. So Jackie Smith was one of the Home Secretaries pushing for ID cards. At one stage, um, I clearly remember the bill for ID cards had risen um, by 50 million as Home Office unveiled even just the pilot scheme. So what Jackie Smith said was that she wanted to get these transport workers to volunteer to have these cards. Um, the idea was to enroll 200,000 airside and other critical transport workers first. Um, and begin an 18-month pilot scheme at two airports, Manchester and London City, and without workers paying the £30 fee that was originally envisaged. So look at that. They wanted not only to have this national identification scheme, but they wanted us to pay for it too. And what they did, what the plan was by um, involving the transport workers, that was the first step to making it mandatory. So Tony Blair and his government spent an absolute fortune on forcing through um, national ID cards. At one stage, the bill was estimated at five billion pounds, no joke. And what was even more hilarious was when David Cameron's coalition came in in 2010, the very first bill to be scrapped was Tony Blair's ID card scheme. Now that was interesting, right? That was, that was very interesting. And Theresa May made a big thing about it, about how it was infringing on our rights, like any of them really care, no. But what? But it had proven to be extremely unpopular. So to make it the very first bill that they scrapped was a vote winner. I mean, they'd already got into power, but it was it was what the public wanted. The public didn't want um, national ID cards. Yes, there were the occasional people who popped up and said, what a thoroughly good idea, but they hadn't really considered what where it could possibly lead to or what it could possibly be about so 2010 the tony blair's favored id digital id biometric id scheme was parked and some people thought that was it aha that's funny right nearing the end of of tony blair's time in office was when madeline mccann was reported missing and it seems so peculiar to me that in so much of my research that involves government and issues of totalitarianism, Madeleine McCann seems to pop up. So Madeleine McCann had been reported missing about a month before 
um, Gordon Brown took over from Tony Blair. But Tony Blair and his wife were very involved in supporting Kate and Jerry McCann, of course, because prime ministers always get involved with parents of missing children. And I mean immediately. Um, on the 4th of May, only hours after the alert of, Mad of Madeline's disappearance, the English ambassador, John Buck, had already been in the apartment offering uh, the McCann solidarity. And it should be noted that on that same day, the, the ambassador met with senior officials from the Portuguese police to understand the outlines of the case. These were extraordinary political steps that were being taken on behalf of a family. And so immediately, Tony Blair and his government got involved with the McCanns and offered them a great deal of support. Now, this was for a number of reasons. One, the optics looked great. This is a reality. Politicians think like this. Politicians and their lackeys think like this. So Kate and Jerry McCann, middle class couple to many people, a very attractive couple. And Madeline was attractive and perfect poster people for what he was already planning to do. And Tony Blair hoped that the McCanns would help him realise his far reaching um, identity scheme. And to a degree, they did. They started petitioning European parliaments to extend what was known as the Amber Alert. The Amber Alert was cross-border cooperation, whereby if a child went missing, they were able to immediately inform authorities um, in uh, adjacent countries and uh, hopefully work together. But this also worked hand in hand with the rollout of a digital ID scheme. And in fact, Jerry McCann even went so far as to comment that if there had been a proper Amber Alert when Madeline went missing, uh, they may have been able to have um, got her back. And uh, this, of course, appealed to the high emotion that was taking place at the time at the disappearance of Madeline McCann. And um, Tony Blair was not averse to using this at all. In fact, to such a degree that he brought in a number of important key people to assist Kate and Jerry McCann. One of them was Clarence Mitchell. Clarence Mitchell was in charge of his media monitoring unit. And Clarence Mitchell at once very cockily made an announcement that it was his job to um, to basically control the press and what went in the press regarding them. And Clarence Mitchell worked with Kate and Jerry McCann for many years and probably does to a certain degree, although in a much more in the background role now, um, sort of the all seeing eye and it, uh, an absolutely political appointment. I doorstep Clarence Mitchell on election night when he was attempting to knock Caroline Lucas um, off of her perch in Brighton and he wanted to become the Member of Parliament under the Conservatives for Brighton. He, he didn't succeed that night, but I doorstepped him and it was a joyous moment. And it's actually in one of my McCann documentaries, which is available on YouTube. And then Gordon Brown, who replaced Tony Blair, um, also became involved with the McCanns. So the Portuguese police coordinator, Gonzalo Amaral, but there's lots been said about him, um, but he be he believed that the abduction was faked. And it was believed that Gordon Brown knew that Gonzalo Amaral was going to be removed from his post before Gonzalo Amaral knew it. Um, this was how influential um, British prime ministers were regarding the Madeleine McCann case. And interestingly, um, in the days that followed Kate and Jerry McCann being made official suspects, or Arguido as it's known in Portugal, Gordon Brown and Jackie Smith visited Leicester Police Station, the local police station for Kate and Jerry McCann. 
And it was supposed to be about a sort of neighborhood watch scheme. But those of us who were busy watching what was taking place knew it was nothing of the sort. This was a high powered meeting where Gordon Brown went to talk to the local police about the McCanns. New Labour, as they were known, and that was Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and their lackeys gave absolute assistance to Kate and Jerry McCann. And that was absolutely the beginning of what I consider one of the biggest cover ups in British history. And we still have Operation Grange, which is obviously the investigation into the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. It has cost us approximately £40 million. And this was on a, on a path that was set by Tony Blair. And that's because he had hoped that Kate and Jerry McCann, while adding some sheen to him and, and Tony Blair, they liked to cozy up to the attractive couple, but also because they had plans for Kate and Jerry McCann regarding digital ID and Kate and Jerry McCann um, did actually succeed in managing to, managing to convince um, various European counterparts to take part in the Amber Alert, and it and they succeeded. Tony Blair continued to be extremely influential on the world stage, a major player at the World Economic Forum. And some people are saying when Klaus Schwab retires, um, if he ever does retire, or if he just sort of falls off the perch. Tony Blair will replace him. That is that is how highly Tony Blair is considered amongst globalists. So after office, Tony Blair became even more involved with the Rothschilds. In January 2008, after he'd resigned from British politics, Tony Blair joined JP Morgan Chase in a senior advisory capacity. Of course, JP Morgan Chase is a Rothschild associated business. The bank was estimated to have paid him 2.52 million per year. I mean, that's just extraordinary money, isn't it? Tony Blair has been working at great length with Israel, as uh, many of these ministers do. We know that now. Many people are deeply offended by Tony Blair and with very, very good reason, whether it's to do with Dr. David Kelly or the Iraq war or the fact or the dodgy dossier or the fact that this man has never been held to account and has seemed to have gone on to one incredible job after another. And it's because they are all in it together. So then Tony Blair, a man who truly has something of a God complex, and we talked quite a lot about people with God complexes recently, um, formed the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change because he, you know, that's how he sees himself. He sees himself as a global statesman. And what was interesting, it was, whereas in 2010, it was the Conservative government uh, who got rid of Tony Blair's ID card scheme. In 2023, he, Tony Blair then teamed up with a former Conservative Party leader, William Hague, for his Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And they put forth a new plan, um, a new national purpose, innovation can power the future of Britain, um, produced by multiple authors, but fronted by Tony Blair and William Hague. Look at this interesting picture. Look at them. They're, they're, they're almost standing in lockstep with each other. Look how they're both holding their hands. Interesting, isn't it? And they are they are very much pushing for a digital ID. He, Tony Blair has said it is common sense to move towards digital ID. One of the reports that uh, they have been pushing is the great enabler, transforming the future of Britain's public services through digital identity. And the most cursory of glances at the sort of um, manifesto of ideas to transform the future of Britain um, will confirm that he's he's basically pushing exactly the same plan as the Rothschilds and the World Economic Forum. He wants to harness 
artificial intelligence and digital identity in his words to give and receive information in real time and one of the things that he said was the united kingdom has been at the forefront of many of these breakthroughs and was home to one of humanity's great leaps the industrial revolution another revolution is now taking place with developments in ai a technology with a level of impact akin to the internal combustion engine electricity and the internet so incrementalism will not be enough because tony blair is all about pushing through very quickly at his will right um and uh, so so they are pushing for this and bear in mind, this is an all-encompassing um, solution for Blair and his cronies, because what they want to see through the um, through digital IDs is the modernisation of public services in the UK, including, of course, our National Health Service. Um, now, when they say the modernisation, they mean the the further digitalisation. In other words, medicine and our digital ID will work hand in hand. During the C-19 period, Tony Blair didn't even bother hiding what he thought about this issue. He was very much forcing the idea of jabs and in relation to the issue of digital ID. And Tony Blair's plan encompasses all of society, including school children who are also there, of course, a target for him. He wants to establish a digital learner ID that will contain all educational information, enabling a personalised education for every child. If they were truly interested in giving a personalised education for other, other for every child, that would be interesting to see. But we know they're not. Absolutely not. The whole point about the education system, it's still based on the uh, the old mode of educating people just up to a certain point where they could stop the factories. That's where the curriculum comes from. And that's what it's still based on. Um, and they want, you know, Tony Blair sees himself as somebody who should overrule all systems. Now, this absolutely, of course, all works hand in hand with the Great Reset agenda of which Tony Blair has promoted um, and is very much a part of. And this, without a shadow of a doubt, is, is about creating a new digital ID slave system for the world with people like Tony Blair in charge of us. There are many problems with a digital ID system. And whereas in 2006, Tony Blair just wanted everybody's prints, in 2023, Tony Blair wants a whole set of digital credentials to fit into your digital wallet. Now, this is very concerning. He's looking in particular at India and their digital system, as well as China. China, of course, their digital ID system is based on a social credit score, which Tony Blair absolutely supports because he supports the idea of uh, uh, mandatory jabs, as one example. There are many people who say, yeah, having a digital ID is great. You can have all you need in one one thing so everything you need your bank card your passport your identification for the sports center but that is to overlook how controlled you become with a centralized digital system and let's not forget governments worldwide did abuse digital id during c19 look what they did with vaccine passports if you weren't prepared to submit and have a coercively forced jab you were turned into a second class citizen some even admitted it such as the reprehensible jacinda arden and there was this thing where if you if you refuse the jab 
you couldn't travel. If you refused to be tested, you couldn't travel. People lost their livelihoods because of this. So we know we can't trust these people. We know we can't. This is about creating a social credit um, system whereby we become mere slaves to people like Tony Blair and puppets to society where we have to obey their rules, our credit will be turned off. This is not that far-fetched. This is not looking at a future that's never going to happen. It's already here. It's already happened. It happened during C-19. In 2023, it is impossible for us to avoid the Israel-shaped elephant in the room. A couple of days ago in Parliament, MPs voted against a ceasefire in Gaza. I don't know how you can see all those pictures coming out and vote against a ceasefire. And a total of 56 Labour MPs voted for the ceasefire in Gaza, and that was against their party leader, Keir Starmer. Um, and the voting was MPs voted 293 to 125, with, so with a majority of 168. But we are living in a time where, where Israel is all in the British Parliament. Israel, um, friends of Israel, many politicians are friends of Israel and their loyalties are elsewhere. Their loyalties are not with us. Which brings me again to the very useful Tony Blair. Tony Blair is um, a Zionist um, and he has been used in one role after another as a peacekeeper in the Middle East, which is obscene given his history. I mean, it's these people are ultimate gaslighters, aren't they? But Netanyahu has chosen Tony Blair um, to to basically be a mastermind of the, the the PR spin on what is taking place in Gaza. Israel is said to be appointing Tony Blair as the Gaza humanitarian coordinator. I mean, this is really narcissistic gaslighting, if ever we heard it. And the thing is, is Tony Blair is very, very useful. Tony Blair has failed up to this point to be able to persuade British people um, around to his idea of a digital ID. So guess where they've taken it, Africa. They always go there, don't they? Look what Bill Gates did with his jabs. But uh, Blair and his authoritarian cronies have gone for Africa um, with the aim of imposing their will there. And, uh, and we already know, of course, that the Ukraine, which uh, again, are somebody said to me recently, and that is we should put Ukraine and Israel on our tax returns, seeing as we're paying so much to fund them and uh, put, put them down as a business expense. I thought that was quite interesting. But also, obviously, we know that there is a digital revolution taking place in the Ukraine. And uh, again, this is this is the globalists at work. Tony Blair is Big Brother's Big Brother. He never went away because what he is talking about now was always the plan. They just did it in stealth. They wanted you to believe that this was about protecting society and the good of humanity, when in fact it's about enslaving us further. So, according to her website, soniapalton.co.uk, uh, she has written extensively on the issue of austerity. Um, she is, uh, let's see, another TV appearance, she has research scripted and presented the weekly Lively weekly spot on the popular culture for KISS FM. Her TV experience is varied, from interviewing artists backstage at the AIDS concert to reporting on the woes of child support agency ITV. 
through to revealing her personal experience of romance to motherhood, she is regularly interviewed about the newspaper, her newspaper articles for the BBC and ITV. She is a regular debater on ITVs this morning, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, I got that from her own website there. So moving on now to someone I'm sure most of you are more familiar with, and this is a an excellent breakdown of a multitude of events all um, converging in the year of 2023 by Russell Brand. The AstraZeneca vaccine has been branded defective in a landmark UK legal case. Does that mean we're going to have many more legal cases now and that perhaps these medical products were rushed to market without sufficient investigation and clinical trialling? <laughs> Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me on our mutual voyage to truth, freedom, and awakening together. In spite of the fact that it sometimes seems impossible, oppressive, dangerous, and deadly to speak freely, to think critically, to communicate openly, to challenge power, I believe we're closer now than ever. Steal yourself. Be ready to go across the breach into new revelatory territories because truth of a few years ago is just fallen apart, has fallen away. The scales have been lifted. Remember, hey, if you don't take this vaccine, Hey, you better take this medication. People that don't, they should be ashamed. The people who are not getting vaccines, who are believing the lies on the internet instead of science, it's time to start shaming them. What else? Or leave them behind. Well, the legal cases have started now. AstraZeneca, oh no, we made critical errors in introducing and in fact, in many cases, mandating medications. Now, a lot of people just will close their ears and their eyes to this because the delirium is too sweet to release. But the truth is coming out. Let's get into it. The first thing we'll look at is a piece of propaganda from the British establishment, the BBC, revealing for the first time that there were problems, that there was clotting being caused by AstraZeneca. This is way back in 2021. Remember those days? Let's have a look at that now. And the WHO, curiously, still maintaining that there's no problem with it. Very odd. The biggest member states of the European Union have now joined the list of nations questioning the performance of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Germany, France, Spain and Italy are all taking the precautionary measure of suspending use of the vaccine because of fears about possible side effects, including blood clots. There's a precaution. We're just going to withdraw this. Look at how the language has altered and has been altering. This COVID inquiry that's happening in the UK would not be happening if independent media voices, and I mean yours actually, had not at the beginning gone, whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on here? All Jay Bhattacharya, Robert Malone, Peter McCulloch, Dave Martin, Judy Miss, all these people that were just, you crackpots, shut up, that is mis- misinformation okay well now people are getting paid out because of this stuff is it misinformation or was it something that should always always have been looked at critically openly is this ever a subject that should have been subject to censure and control shouldn't this have been openly discussed from the beginning isn't that obvious common sense that with something of this scale granting that much power to potential exploitative forces whether they're governmental or private is ridiculous and dangerous well now we have a verdict it is. The AstraZeneca vaccine has already been suspended in the Netherlands, Ireland, Iceland, Bulgaria, Denmark and Norway. Oh, those guys. Let's make sure we pay close attention to what they say. Now, the World Health Organization, along with the EU's very own medicines regulator, say that there is no justification for this temporary ban. They would say that, wouldn't they? Because they've got a weird set 
of a gender, those guys. It's very unusual the way that they think. It's very unusual the way that they're funded. Given that the word health is pretty prominent in their title, you would think that their conduct would be a little different. And leading British scientists insist that the vaccine is safe. Okay, so that's 2021. Now let's have a look at some of the legacy media reporting on this subject from today. There isn't any. You can't find a single legacy media outlet telling you, oh, by the way, there's been a payout. I wonder why that will be. Isn't it interesting? The stories they really focus a lot of resources on and the stories they just kind of ignore. Is there any corollary? Is there any theme? Is there any trajectory? The only way we can bring you an update on this story is with the often banned, derided and YouTube strike receiving online commentator, a friend of the show, John Campbell. Take it away, John. Is a landmark legal case. Oxford AstraZeneca COVID jab was defective, is the contention. 8th of November 2023, quite a few outlets. Um, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine has been branded as defective. Um, claims of efficacy were vastly vastly overstated and as we'll see they vastly overstated its efficacy and the media vastly overstated it with them and even when it was revealed there were problems they tried to mitigate that the world health organization still say it's okay isn't it curious how they operate uh, th this is in fact the case uh, you could argue it was very vastly overstated in other words, it didn't quite have in the vial what it said on, on the tin is what this is arguing. Defective. This is the, uh, the way they're trying to get around the, the, the indemnity that the government gave them. But the government's going to probably end up paying for this. It's going to cost you and me a fortune. Oh, well, no problem. It's going to be the taxpayers that will end up footing the bill for this travesty. Same way that we paid for the development and release of most of the products themselves, even though the profits found their way to, oh, yeah, Moderna and Pfizer. What do you invest in those products? Let's get into this, guys. The AstraZeneca vaccine caused a small group of individuals to suffer catastrophic injury and bereavement. To make this statement is not to dabble in anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, which, I mean, what do you mean by anti-vaccine conspiracy theory at this point? You have to describe what you mean is an anti-vaccine conspiracy theory you're against it because of a conspiracy a cons but, uh, this is a fact evidenced by the reports of clinicians medical experts and coroners across the uk clinicians medical experts and coroners not crackpots nut jobs and conspiracy theorists for those who want to maintain a narrative that vaccines do no harm the experience of the vaccine injured and bereaved constitutes an inconvenient truth no they should be shamed i was told the legacy media told me what to do with the anti-vaxxers shame them why don't we shame these bereaved people that we can maybe shame them into silence and anyone who tries to propagate these ideas will just find some reason they shouldn't be able to speak either i'm sure we can come up with something this is a truth that to date has been easier for the government and much of the media to ignore by beginning a legal battle against astrazeneca the vaccine injured and bereaved can no longer be silenced. Damn! The Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine has been branded defective in a multi-million pound landmark legal action that will suggest claims over its efficacy were vastly overstated. Not only were they vastly overstated, those claims were amplified by the media and people that tried to challenge these vastly overstated claims were shamed and silenced and still to this day there are consequences for speaking out in this way. The pharmaceutical giant is being sued in the High Court in a test case by Jamie Scott, a father of two who suffered a significant 
significant permanent brain injury that's left him unable to work as a result of a blood clot after receiving the jab in April 2021. A second claim is being brought by the widower and two young children of 35-year-old Alpa Taylor, who died after having the jab made by AstraZeneca, the UK-based pharmaceutical giant. It's interesting this man received the jab in April 2021 when it had been revealed that the AstraZeneca vaccine caused blood clots, but the WHO was still saying it was okay. If they want to introduce a global treaty that means they'll be able to mandate vaccines across the world and censor opposition to those measures, we should definitely all sign up to that right now and definitely not sign this petition in the link below that would prevent that mad treaty. The test cases could pave the way for as many as 80 damages claims worth an estimated $80 million over a new condition known as vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia. It's catchy and thrombosis, V-I-T-T. That was identified by specialists in the wake of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine rollout. The vaccine, which was heralded at its launch by Boris Johnson as a triumph for British science, is no longer used in the UK. The government recommends three other vaccines for its autumn booster programme. Let's not ask any questions about those then. And the idea that it's like just Boris Johnson rather than a coordinated global event to which every political party signed up is ridiculous and convenient. What this is trying to suggest is, well, if you just get rid of Boris Johnson and AstraZeneca, there, there's the problem solved. It's not as if there was a global campaign to prevent you from thinking or saying or daring to believe anything else. In the months following the rollout, the potential serious side effect of the AstraZeneca jab was identified by scientists. Following this, it was recommended it no longer be given to the under 40 in the UK because the risk of receiving the jab outweighed the harm posed by COVID. AstraZeneca last night told The Telegraph that patient safety was its highest priority. Is it though? Or is profit the highest priority? And is patient safety a sort of byproduct, an inadvertent consequence of the pursuit of this profit? Official figures from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA, show at least 81 deaths in the UK are suspected to have been linked to the adverse reaction that caused clotting in people who also had low blood blood platelets. Oh, comorbidities is okay now. In total, almost one in five people who suffered from the condition died as a result, according to the MHRA's own figures. That's their figures. Official figures obtained under a Freedom of Information request show that out of 148 payouts made by the government under the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme, which provides compensation to those injured by vaccines or to bereaved nicks of kin, at least 144 went to recipients of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Fewer than five people under the scheme received vaccines other than AstraZeneca. Is it me? Or does the future feel more insecure and uncertain? Wars, pandemics, lies, trickery. My cats keep having kittens. The last one's personal. For those who are in the United States, there is a way to secure your hard-earned nest egg. American Hartford Gold make it easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside a qualifying retirement account like your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is the highest rated firm in the US with an A plus rating from the BBB and thousands of satisfied clients. Right now, they will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. This offer is only for US customers. Call 866-505-8315. That's 866-505-8315. Or simply text BRAND to 998899. Get up to $5,000 of silver and protect your future in this crazy, crazy world with some solid, precious metals literally made in stars. The claim is being brought by Mr. Scott under the Consumer Protection Act 1987 and argues that AstraZeneca's vaccine was defective in that it was not as safe as individuals were entitled to expect. The case will 
raise questions about what the UK authorities knew about concerns over the vaccine and how they were handled. An examination of WhatsApp messages sent by or to Matt Hancock, the then Health Secretary, obtained by the Telegraph as part of the lockdown files and which have been passed to the COVID public inquiry, suggest concerns were aired by US authorities. AstraZeneca never in the end applied for a license in the US. At the time, a number of European countries were pausing the vaccine rollout over fears it caused clotting in some people. I suppose what will take place now is an attempt to minimise and mitigate the impact of this information and make it like this is an anomalous outlier. This is not some institutional thing that went on. The COVID inquiry in our country, which would not be happening without the actions, I would say, of independent media and people that were brave enough to speak out during the propaganda campaign that was fully immersive, pressurising and shaming of people that dared to have another view. What will happen now is, oh, there was a few bad actors. This vaccine didn't work and this politician was a bit inept. This was systemic. This was coordinated. This was a global event. We were all going to have to collectively forget that there was an advertising campaign, that there was public shaming, that there were shows where vaccines danced about on the TV. Where almost everyone you know anecdotally would say, yeah, this thing happened to me and I know this person that had this happen and morticians contributing. Why would you need to censor and control the conversation unless there was something to suppress and control? Let me know in the chat in the comments. Well, you can. The legal action will also examine the role of the government in reassuring the public after Matt Hancock authorised an indemnity for AstraZeneca in the very unexpected event of any adverse reactions that could not have been foreseen through the robust checks and procedures that have been put in place. But we better give them indemnity indemnity anyway. If their measures have been so robust, what's the requirement for the indemnity? So while AstraZeneca didn't apply for a license in the US, European nations were stopping using it. Britain was granting indemnity, even though there was plainly some fear that it caused blood clotting. This is an international travesty, and I think it's just the beginning. Lawyers point out in the legal claim that Mr. Hancock, in an accompanying departmental minute, said, the data so far on this vaccine suggests there will be no adverse reactions and so no liability. Right. Oh, you can trust him. Sarah Moore, partner at Housefield, the law firm bringing the claim, says, The group of individuals whom we represent have always been clear. They do not dabble in anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. However, it is plainly factually inaccurate to claim that vaccines do no harm, given the experience of our client group, the vaccine injured and bereaved. They still have to sort of distance themselves from vaccine conspiracy. But what does that constitute at this time? That term was invented to prevent people from asking questions and having a legitimate conversation about a pretty unique event. There's no conspiracy theory beyond that. There are, of course, likely in any subject, people that have views that are on a spectrum of extremity, but you can't use that to delegitimize the skepticism that accompanied a unique global event that was, let me say it again, exploited to introduce regulations and legislation that would never have been accepted otherwise, normalize the idea of censorship, normalize the idea of mass compliance, create incredible profits for Pfizer and Moderna and other companies with some pretty interesting ties to very powerful figures in the US government and UK government, as well as creating a general climate of compliance and normalising the control of a population. Now, I suppose it gets into conspiracy theory when you start to contemplate how that might be used or misused in the future, but it's no longer a conspiracy theory in the same sense that some unfounded and absurd proposition could be put forward without any evidence at all. That's not a conspiracy theory. The idea of anti-vax rhetoric now has to be paused and parked, like the AstraZeneca vaccine should have been, and if it had been, there'd be some people 
people that are dead now that would be alive. Sir Jeremy Wright Casey, the former Attorney General, urged the government to step in and settle the legal claims before they came to court, given that ministers had indemnified AstraZeneca. Sir Jeremy, who has raised the case of Mr Scott, who is one of his constituents with Rishi Sunak, said, It's very, very strange the government has not come up with a way to settle these cases where the cause is clear. I don't get it from a professional point of view or from the political point of view because of the damage done if these cases are not settled quickly. And the damage is, of course, that people begin to recognise that there were some appalling decisions made in the last couple of years. People rode roughshod over democracy, over human rights, over enshrined principles. And that, again, being normalised everywhere now. We don't have due procedure. We don't have those ideas anymore. What we do is we have a centralised authoritarian message that's amplified by the legacy media. And if a few people get blood clots along the way, that's just a necessary byproduct of this agenda. So Jeremy added, there's no sense of urgency on this. There's no realisation in the government that this is an impending problem. The PM told me he would find out more about it and come back to me. None of us can be confident we won't have to go through all of this again one day and if we do the confidence in mass vaccination needs to be in place how can it be how can it possibly be after this that almost sort of sounds like a threat doesn't it like that you know we're going to definitely need mass vaccination and how can we have confidence in mass vaccination well we can't have confidence in mass vaccination because of everything we've learned this is in the mainstream now because it's going through legal and official channels and there's a covid inquiry but if you're aware of the broader narrative around vaccines and around the measures taken around vaccines the way they were introduced the undemocratic nature of them you're aware that this is just the tip of the iceberg this is just a small part of an enormous and extraordinary story that requires a reckoning that ultimately leaves us in a situation where we cannot trust the government, cannot trust the legacy media, cannot trust Big Pharma, cannot trust the bodies that are supposed to regulate them, can't trust individuals within Parliament, can't trust Parliament itself, can't trust individuals in Congress, can't trust the system of Congress. It leads you to not a bleak appraisal, but a necessary scepticism to systemic power. The COVID pandemic was in one way unique, but what it revealed was not unique. What it revealed was the convergence of interests in media, big tech, big pharma and government and how those things operate if a crisis affords it. You don't need to believe in conspiracies, you just need to now look at the last few years, see what happened and this is merely one piece of evidence that allows you to reassess the entire last three years with a degree of clarity that the mainstream media still wouldn't afford you. They're still not reporting on this for example. During an attempt to mandate jabs on NHS staff, some health and social care workers with a principled objection to being told what to do with their bodies by the government would be forced out of their jobs. All the while individuals and organisations with genuine concerns about aspects of vaccination policy were smeared and silenced in a disgraceful state-sponsored campaign to suppress vaccine safety and efficacy-related debate. Have they acknowledged that yet? Or have they simply continued with it, tried to prevaricate, tried to pretend this is just a minor issue, and tried to control dissent wherever possible using some of the most unspeakable means? The victims had the vaccination out of a sense of duty. It felt the right thing to do to help Britain out of the pandemic and to prevent more vulnerable people being made ill by stopping transmission of the virus but the result for them and their families has been catastrophic. And it doesn't stop transmission either. The entire thing has been a fiasco, a fallacy, and an almost unprecedented global lie. Many have been left wondering why they bothered those that are still alive. Because this doesn't get into excess deaths, this story. It doesn't get into the phenomena of excess deaths, because that's still on the side of the line that this used to be. That's still there. When the WHO, you saw it on the BBC, went, it's actually fine, excess deaths still lives in that territory. Soon, one day, unless for some reason independent media was really attacked and independent voices were dissented and shut down and silenced, and I don't see any evidence of that happening. Do you see any evidence of that happening anywhere? Then excess deaths will move into this portion. And 
and you'll in the end get legit cases and proper lawyers and people looking for payouts going whoa wait a second that's not normal that this healthy athlete dropped dead from a heart attack that's not normal that these young people died 60,000 excess deaths in the United States in 2021 and 2022 that's not normal that will have to come into the fray for contemplation and consideration at some time they'll resist it for as long as possible they'll try and control it but as with the AstraZeneca case in the end it will have to come out a World Health Organization report in June 2022 was unclear about whether the vaccine stopped transmission of the virus no substantive data are available related to the impact of vaccine on transmission or viral shedding states the report in relation to AstraZeneca so in June 2022 they knew there was no substantive data of course now we know a lot more about it the World Health Organization seems to have an agenda beyond world health. They are quite well organised though, so at least one word in their name is sort of true. Lawyers claim that the vaccine was less safe than the public was led to expect. Let me know in the comments if you agree with that. Should the courts agree, the damages in compensation are likely to be huge. One lesson to be learned is that young healthy people should not have been forced through restrictions on their movements to be vaccinated against a disease that hardly affected them. Do you think so? Well, there you are. In a sense, the entire narrative is beginning to crack. Would this narrative have cracked were it not for voices like John Campbell and other voices contributing to this conversation? Remember at the height of this pandemic when Joe Rogan dared to take ivermectin that there was a global attack on him that seemed coordinated. The media appears to be able to behave like one unit, like a swarm of insects or like geese flying in formation when it comes to amplifying the message of the powerful. Similarly, they have a power to shut down dissenting voices. Now these court cases have begun, it's likely there'll be a small portion of justice, just as much as they can manage. Still excess deaths have to be dealt with, still the consequences of lockdown, the people whose cancers were exacerbated, heart disease were exacerbated, myocarditis, pericarditis, the impact on young people and children, the economy, businesses, all so much to be considered. A reckoning that is unlikely to take place unless independent media voices are able to continue to speak openly and freely on these subjects. Here are the numbers of ways that's likely to be stopped. The WHO have got a treaty that has a censorship proposal in it. Legislation's been passed all over the world to stop independent media being able to speak on big tech platforms because the big tech platforms themselves will be controlled and censored. And of course, dissenting voices are regularly, routinely attacked to a staggering degree. We have to unite. We have to stand up against this. We have to realise that the truth is coming out. But that's just what I think. Why don't you let me know what you think in the chat. If you enjoyed this video, have a look at either of these. But join us every day on Rumble where we speak freely about this stuff where we bring on guests that can tell you stuff like Dave Martin that will blow your mind about what's been going on. But more important than any of that is if you can, please stay free. Hey, thanks for watching. Cheers. If you want to see more unsaid. Uh, you know, we've put our beachhead down. We have put the, the front for the rest of the troops to be able to go behind and change and peacefully and lawfully change the minds of people, uh, you know, on the rest of that continent. We, we're the beachhead, but we're never ever going to get off the beach because people are going to go. I, I had too many arguments with you on Facebook. You've just instilled too many negative emotions. Whatever reason mm -hmm. is, yeah. the likes of Bridgen and Campbell can storm that beach and go further into the population than we ever can because they were ones who've changed their minds. They, mm -hmm. I see that. You know. So, but I, yeah. while I totally respect your point of view and would never dream of editing it out, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's important to show compassion gratitude, mercy, and say, I do not hold it against you that you were wrong the first time. I hold it in high regard because so few people can do it.
but you've looked at yourself in the mirror and gone, I was wrong and I'm going to change my mind. And I'm now, it, it, it's like switching football teams. Like imagine, oh, of course, it, yeah. imagine like in a, in a, like a, a rivalry, I don't know much about football, but imagine a Millwall Tottenham sort of uh, yeah. situation. Imagine being in the Millwall stand, yeah. Tottenham score a goal. Yeah. And he just stands up, takes off his normal stuff and goes, you know what? I'm going to join the other team. You guys yeah. were wrong. You know? Yeah, they have to do that. They have to do that. They have to stare down the barrel of the camera and they have to do that publicly. Yeah. And then and then they can get people like myself and others who are reticent to believe people who very much look like they're uh, part of a deceptive campaign that's cynically something that we're all expecting these days because they keep happening. And I hope, Jim... I do hope that you're right. I do fully. And I really, and I always appreciate, and in fact, in many ways, you know, respect that I can tether myself to such a rational uh, position that you hold. And I appreciate, I don't think you're right. Mm -hmm. I like, because I have to like have yeah. my own position and where I think of, but I hope you are. So just to, you think, um, you know, when I said about the strategy of down the line, hey, this lockdown is great. You think he's going to be controlled opposition to lead that? I think he'll do whatever he is told to. Uh, both of them, a hundred percent. I think they're both entirely controlled. And as soon as, unfortunately, they're controlled, whether tacitly or directly, because as soon as look at him now, I'm looking at him on screen in Parliament talking to nobody, you know, three people on the other yeah. side of the bench. And there he is in his suit. And we all know you only have to like watch one documentary on what the suit represents, what him standing where he is represents in terms of like the veracity of what he says. He's a paid liar. That's what people in suits do. That's what a, a suit is for. So that he speaks for his suit. He is not a person in that role. He's somebody who's speaking as a role, and the role is the suit that he's wearing. And he could just as easily change the color of tie tomorrow and be in charge of, you know, slaughtering kids for uh, for burn victims, you know, as far as like as abstract as things could go and immoral or unethical as he could choose to be. And that's what suits allow these people to do. And I say again, whether it's directly or tacitly, they've grown up in that knowledge. Mm -hmm. They know that when they wake up in the morning and they put on their iron suit, that they are now representative of whatever it is, whether it used to be the Conservative Party, now an independent, whether it's the government, whether it's a business, whether it's Exxon, whether it's mobile or mobile, whatever he has chosen to cloak himself in the, uh, the representation of, that's what that suit allows him to do. So I'd, I'd actually, I'd respect him more if he was in a field talking to hippies in a, in like a cash, you know, a, a, a cash can or something, you know, like in honesty, just because, um, because I would, I would believe him. And I don't believe, I don't believe politicians, regardless of who they say they now represent, standing in the House of Parliament. It's just like, it's a cesspool of lies and liars. That's what that place is at. That's the same building that Theresa May lost the dirty dossier. It's, it's full of absolute viperous criminals of every stripe. Keir Starmer is a respected human being in that house. Boris Johnson can go into that house and not be arrested outright as a war criminal and a meddler in affairs internationally in keeping the war alive in, in Ukraine. That, that house is representative of the protection of utter criminals 
and to see another person who's dressed just like them standing, talking within it, does absolutely nothing to convince me that there's anything good going to come of that, unfortunately, and I have good reason to feel that way. Oh, I didn't say anything good would come of it, but I think I disagree with you that he's, I think he's a good, good, I think yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, because we can't know that. Uh, and we, yeah, and we, we hope, and we yeah. just hope, I, again. Yeah. We can't prove I think you're wrong, but I hope to hell you're right. Yeah, we, we can't prove each other wrong. And yeah. let this be a, let, let this be a, an exercise in the way debate should be, which is like. Yeah, okay. later we're going to go out for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not, we're not even going to think the same thoughts all the time then either. <laughs> but in today's world, yeah. like, you know, if you have a disagreement with someone, it's like, I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. Obviously, yeah. that's not going to happen because you've been banned off. <laughs> I'd sure like to unfriend you on Facebook, Jim Grant. I'll tell you what. If it was five years ago, I, first thing I would have done. <laughs> so, I'll tell you what, I've got, I've got a question for you then. Oh, great. Um, what could Andrew Bridgen do, wearing his suit, that would convince you he is someone that's made a genuine mistake, turned his mind, uh, to change his mind, and wants to stand up for what's right? What could he do to 